and welcome to the latest episode of Disrupt's podcast. I'm Tom Jackson. And I'm Gabriella Mulligan. Disrupt Podcast is the one-stop shop for African tech startups, news and views, bringing you all the latest from the continent's startup ecosystem, plus interviews with special guests. This episode, we'll be hearing from Catalyst Fund about their newly launched program for Ghanaian fintech entrepreneurs, while South African prop tech startup RioS tells us about their launch, which comes with some impressive angel backing. Before that, though, here's all the news from the last few weeks. The African tech ecosystem witnessed a landmark moment recently after Nigerian fintech company Paystack was acquired by global payments leader Stripe in a deal that could be worth more than $200 million. Launched in January 2016, Paystack is a payments company that helps businesses in Africa get paid by anyone, anywhere in the world. The startup processes over 50% of all web payments in Nigeria, powering payments for over 60,000 organizations including FedEx, UPS, MTN and many others. It has now been acquired by Stripe, which led Paystack's $8 million funding round back in 2018. Stripe's payment software is used by customers including Amazon, Google, Shopify and Zoom, and its acquisition of Paystack is the latest move in its international expansion. Paystack will be Stripe's catalyst for growing internet commerce in Africa, with a Lagos-based startup having plans to expand across the continent, starting with a pilot in South Africa. It's been a good couple of weeks for acquisitions, actually with South African on-demand delivery startup Bottles acquired by retailer Pick and Pay last week. Having started life as an alcohol delivery service, Bottles has worked with Pick and Pay since 2018, but it repurposed its app to offer grocery deliveries following the prohibition on the sale of alcohol in South Africa during lockdown. Since then, it's had more than 700,000 downloads and has now been fully bought out by Pick and Pay. Another acquisition was made by West African startup Gozem, a previous guest on the podcast in episode 10. Gozem, which started out in the ride-having business but has been adding product lines as it transitions into a super app, has acquired Deliveroom, Togo's leading food delivery app. In other super app news, Algerian mobility startup Temtem launched its own multi-purpose offering, allowing users to access a range of services in one place. Looks like a new trend is taking root. Plenty of funding news as well, starting with a sizable grant for Kenyan e-health startup Ilara Health, another previous guest on the podcast. The company received a $1.1 million grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to improve maternal health outcomes in the country. It was a busy month for South African startups on the funding front, with insurtech company click to shore auto-tech startup CarScan, edtech platform The Gradient Boost, and prop-tech startup ReOS securing investment. We'll hear from the latter, which has developed a management platform for rental professionals and launched with the backing of heavyweight local angels, including Bill Palladino and Mark Forrester later on. Rounds two for Zambia's Good Nature Agro, which bagged a $2.1 million Series A, Nigerian lending marketplace Evolve Credit, and West African energy startup Easy Solar, while Egyptian community management solution provider Malango and last mile delivery startup Drivo were also backed. And finally, the Emerging Markets Fintech Focus Catalyst Fund has partnered the MasterCard Foundation and MEST to launch its inclusive digital accelerator program in Ghana. The first expansion of its flagship program, Catalyst Fund, which is managed by BFA Global, said the inclusive digital commerce accelerator is aimed at scaling digital commerce companies in Ghana and officially launches in November. Tom caught up with Mylise Carraro, Catalyst Fund's managing director, to hear more. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So give us a quick background on Catalyst Fund and how it came about, how it works, what it's achieved so far. Sure. Um, so Catalyst Fund was created in 2015, so almost five years ago, to accelerate early stage inclusive fintech startups across emerging markets. And we wanted to really help companies that are building solutions uh, that we call are appropriate, accessible and affordable for underserved individuals and small businesses in those markets and make sure that we are filling the, the critical capital support and talent gaps that typically limit these companies' growth uh, at the start of their journeys. And we started with support from the Gates Foundation and JP Morgan Chase Foundation. And, and actually, as of September last year, the UK government came in to support our, our own growth. And so over the past yeah, five years, we, we worked with over 37 inclusive fintech startups across emerging markets. And uh, I'm actually pr proud to say that 90% of them are still in business, uh, in spite of all of the recent challenges and, and the pandemic uh, and all of the barriers that early stage startups face. Um, so perhaps one day our job won't be needed, but at the core, we're really created to support that gap in the early phases where entrepreneurs don't have enough capital to really iterate and test the proxy market and build their teams. And on the other end, investors want to see the proof points so that uh, they can make a commercial investment. So we wanted to really bridge that valley of death, we say, um, at, the, at the early phases of, of the entrepreneur's journeys. We've got a slightly alternative model to a lot of other programs that are out there. Just uh, take us through how it works and what's so innovative about it. That's true that we are different from the other accelerators. So from the beginning, we really wanted to be extremely pro-entrepreneur. So we, I was an entrepreneur myself in my time. I built actually a remittances business um, that was focused on a remittances corridor between the U.S. and Latin America. And I've been through several programs and thinking that none of them were, were really tailored to what the various companies in an accelerator program needed because they were all at different stages and um, needed support on different areas and different, you know, different angles. And so we decided that in our program, we were not going to have a cookie cutter model. We would provide flexible grant capital that companies can spend however they like. It's, it's working capital to invest in the team, the product, and we don't really um, mandate like what they need to spend the money on. And we combine that with very bespoke and flexible venture building support. And that's really the key differentiator because we roll up our sleeves and through the BFA uh, network of experts, which is the firm behind the Catalyst Fund, we are able to offer experts in product management, uh, data science, UX, UI research, or simple user research more broadly, um, regulatory, regulatory systems in emerging markets, and you name it, and build the teams that can really meet the needs of the entrepreneurs at that point in time. So that's, that's different because, A, it's extremely tailored, B, it's super intense, like we become extensions of the startup teams. And it's, again, not, uh, not cookie cutter. So every entrepreneur has a slightly different support, but it's really enabling their own growth journeys. Um, and then thirdly, we also offer connections to investors and corporate innovators in the ecosystems and also talent networks and universities so that the companies can not only continue to raise capital after us, because we can't do follow-on rounds, but also form the partnerships they need to scale and uh, continue to fill the talent gaps via the youth that is in the continent and, and just is, is looking for opportunities actually to work at tech companies. So we're trying to be that matchmaker a little bit also um, in the ecosystem. All right, fantastic. Um, 
you've got some quite high pro- high profile backers in the form of like you know UKA, JP Morgan. Um, how have you gone about obtaining that backing, and what what do you think has attracted uh, entities like that to the emerging markets fintech space? Great questions. Uh, at the very beginning, we were working with the Gates Foundation and, and JP Morgan Chase um, that have historically been focused on um, trying to to fill the gaps uh, in in financial inclusion uh, and were driven basically by this desire to figure out how can we bring better financial services in the hands of the underserved and, and low-income populations around the world. Um, so at the beginning, uh, we there was actually a roundtable of investors uh, many of the investors that probably you know and that attended today uh, your event that said, look, we don't have a pipeline problem. Like there's uh, a lot of companies out there, early stage, uh, that have fantastic ideas, but they all basically die sooner than we can realistically invest because they're still too risky for us. And so we do need a mechanism that can de-risk those investments early on and making sure that those solutions are truly tailored for the needs of the other low-income populations because oftentimes the barriers to access are so high that it, that you know entrepreneurs perhaps don't don't venture to the most remote or uh, or yeah again difficult to, to reach uh, segments of the population and so with that thinking we said could we create a, a facility that is focused on on on, on this gap in the ecosystem and works to de-risking the startups works to really take them to product market fit at a point at which investors can make commercial investments, like equity or debt investments, um, and uh, we have validated the proof points for them and then also for the industry. So it was, in a way, alignment with their own goals, the Gates Foundation and, and JP Morgan Chase, and also having the right solution at the right time uh, in terms of an ecosystem development. And then when UK, the UK government came in, FCDO, last September, building on the results of the first you know, four years of the Catalyst Fund, they recognized that uh, we had worked with 30 companies but could work with many more, and the need was still there. Like It's not like the capital support and, uh, and partnerships gaps were, had been filled over this time, even if the fintech sector has been growing. And so they said, well, we'll help you scale. We'll help you scale your venture acceleration support and methodology and also your ecosystem acceleration support. So with them, we actually focused much more on the ecosystem part in our five key markets that are South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, India, and Mexico. So I would say, again, alignment um, with them too, with their own desire to support tech entrepreneurs in emerging markets, and really the belief that it's the nimble startups that uh, are lean and, and innovative that can really be part of the solution uh, to make sure that these populations have, have access to the services they need. Your new program is a bit of a a, um, a bit of a change of step, if you like, because it's not focused on one of your main five markets, and it's an expansion of your um, of your usual program. Tell us how it came about and, and and what its aims are. Absolutely, and you're right; it is our first expansion. Uh, so I will start by by telling you a bit of a background story. So over our time, you know, finance and the financial sector, the fintech sector, has become much more of an enabler rather than a vertical. And it has touched multiple industries where, where non-financial companies also embedded financial products to enhance their value offering, to retain customers, uh, to lower costs. And I think that that at the core, we've seen a lot of companies actually in our portfolio that uh, were non-financial services companies adding financial services via fintech approaches. And I think that 
this is really transforming the financial industry at, at its core um, and also creating new opportunities to, to impact underserved populations, right? So recognizing that we wanted to basically building on um, our proven approach of, of accelerating companies, building on the fact that finance is becoming much more embedded across sectors and expand our work to new sectors that are very high potential and even undercatalyzed to continue to further inclusion. Uh, and the first area that we saw is adjacent and being able to benefit from, from fintech approaches is digital commerce. So this first expansion program uh, is uh, called the Inclusive Digital Commerce Accelerator, and it's supported by the Mastercard Foundation and run in partnership with MEST. And the goal is to support digital commerce companies in Ghana specifically to scale and serve micro and small enterprises in the informal sector in Ghana. So, um, you know, you might think, okay, this is a nice narrative, but I think we'll need to see how it all plays out on the ground. But it, it seemed obvious to look at fintech as an horizontal sector now and, and look at where else we can take our approach um, and continue to expand horizontally that way. Great. You've got some quite high profile partners on board. What are they bringing to the table and how to collaborate collaborations like this succeed when it comes to programs like this? I would say a similar answer to the earlier question. Uh, it's very important to be aligned on the objectives and the goals of the program. And I think that was very much the case for the two partners here, MasterCard Foundation and MEST. So we all um, came together actually right as, as COVID-19 was hitting. And uh, we know that in Ghana, informal micro and small enterprises make up, what, 92% of, of all business uh, and contribute, I think, over 70% of GDP in the country. And uh, we all obviously, through our work, have been working to ensure that we enhance the resilience of uh, micro and small enterprises, MSEs. Uh, and so we thought together, you know, what is a way in which we could increase the resilience of these MSEs, we could improve their, their financial health as well, um, and making sure that they're not the worst impacted, basically, by this pandemic. And uh, obviously, digital commerce and digital tools are an answer. Yet to date, you know, MSEs have, have typically struggled to benefit from digital commerce solutions that typically actually been ignored from, from uh, the big digital commerce companies because there's a lot of challenges like effective digital onboarding mechanisms, for example, low connectivity, um, no financing options, right, a low trust in online payments, poor logistics infrastructures. And so the three of uh, the three parties at the table and what it takes to actually start to chip away and try to improve the ecosystems, uh, the ecosystem in which digital commerce companies can thrive. Um, and it's because of that recognition that, that we came together. So Massacre Foundation obviously has their Young Africa Work Strategy, very focused on figuring out how to spur the ecosystem, digital commerce. MES has the local knowledge and has been working with countless number of entrepreneurs on the ground for years and so and obviously they know Ghana in and out uh, and so can support companies on the ground and we bring to the table the um, the methodology for venture acceleration and the combination of grant capital plus venture building um, so that we with the goal of again spurring the development of the wider ecosystem. So if this is the first expansion of your flagship program do, can we expect to see more um, sort of spin-off programs over the next couple of years? I would love to, uh, and there are a couple of things that we're working on right now to continue to expand in other sectors. 
And we are seeing, for example, great opportunities uh, in the climate space uh, to also work on climate resilience for the most vulnerable, for example, smallholder farmers or, or uh, small fisher, fisher communities in emerging markets. Uh, so climate is certainly an era that we'd like to work in. And then many others, like uh, I think, again, the, the opportunity is limitless in, in this sense. And so health would be another one that I think we're very interested in where embedded fintech can be a force for good. They all sound like very sort of in, impactful sectors. I mean, when it comes to sort of looking and um, making plans for the future, what, what is your primary, your primary driver, so to speak? Is it, is it impact or is it profit? Um, or is there a way that those who two can just go hand in hand and you don't have to prioritize one, or one over the other? The primary driver will always be impact, but I do think that um, we don't necessarily have to prioritize or compromise rather with commercial returns. And this is the the whole point, I think, of a catalyst fund is that we will ultimately catalyze, no pun intended, the sector so that we will have more commercial investments looking at this pipeline of companies that are having an impact on their consumers via commercially viable, sustainable businesses. Uh, so one day the, the grants perhaps won't be needed anymore. But today I think that the need is very much there and especially on the venture building side, like combining the support and talent to the capital to attract more capital in those markets. So there's still a long way to go, but I think it's really the combination of both that it's really powerful. My lease there on Catalyst Fund's goals for the future, and it will certainly be interesting to see what further expansions the organisation has in mind when it comes to supporting fintech in markets such as those in Africa, which are developing extremely quickly. Fintech as a sector may be approaching a level of maturity in Africa, but other sectors are on the up. PropTech, tech-based solutions supporting the buying, selling and renting of real estate, has been a steadily developing area over the last couple of years, and South Africa has emerged as a leader. Gabriella chatted to Craig Buckley, Managing Director of ReOS, to find out about the startup's recent launch, which comes after it received some fairly impressive angel backing. So you've launched to market after three years hard work. Can you tell us a bit more about what work has gone into bringing ReOS to the market? Yes, yeah, sure, Gabriella. So it's been a bit of a journey, as you said. And really, it was just finding what exactly people need in terms of our customer base, in terms of solving the problem to allow them to scale their businesses successfully and um, efficiently. But also, obviously, being a payments-based platform, also, you really can't afford to make mistakes. So that's why we've just taken a slow and steady approach rather than just building it out in an incremental basis and just making sure that at all stages we always know where the money is. Um, yes, and just to really mitigate and to try avoid any errors on our customers' behalves. Have there been any particular challenges to launching? Uh, so we haven't had any particular major issues. I guess the, the, the biggest struggle is just, you know, like I said, we've taken our time. So we've been in beta now for just a, coming up a year. And so that just, I guess, kind of feels like a struggle or a challenge for us, just constantly reminding ourselves to be to be patient and stick to our guns and stick to the game plan, um, because it was always the plan that we had up front. So, yes, it's just been a bit, bit of a struggle, I guess, for ourselves, just keeping ourselves in check and not wanting to rush things. And so I hate to bring COVID into everything, but how has it been launching in the midst of the whole pandemic? 
Well, so I mean, obviously, COVID on the whole has been quite a challenge, um, but we are probably one of the a few silver lining stories in that actually it's opened up quite a few doors for us, and that we've always been geared to work remotely, um, and our system is also cloud based. So it's actually built to enable agencies to work from outside the office. So that's been a pro, and then obviously a far better understanding now, um, and then also obviously. In terms of supporting customers remotely, we've always been pro that, but a lot of people have preferred the face-to-face interaction, which is difficult when you're covering a, a, a large surface area like uh, nationally in terms of South Africa. As you know, logistics, it's quite difficult to have people everywhere. So it's been beneficial from that perspective. Um, but obviously, still the, the underlying backdrop is financially it has been challenging for everyone. And to talk of finances, you've launched with some serious angel backing from the likes of Bill Palladino, Mark Forrester. How did you go about forging these relationships and securing the backing prior to even launching a product? And what did you have to show or prove to be able to get that sort of backing? Yes, so I think like most things are a bit like the business. It didn't happen overnight. So there have been ongoing conversations for, for a while leading up to the investment. Um, I think one of the big uh, turning or influential factors was that both of them have really bought into the idea of really being pro the professionals and looking to empower and um, enable them rather than looking to disrupt and actually displace them. So I think they're really bought into that idea and also not just from a tech perspective but also from a design perspective and a UX perspective, we really have invested a lot of time in terms of building a system that is actually built for the professional, being the rental professional, being our customer. So you get to throw around, I guess, those uh, generic phrases of customer centricity, which is um, always a really big, important one. Um, and then I guess also ultimately it's a, it's a belief not just in the ideas and the product, but also obviously the team and we've got a really nice mix of relevant and complementary skills. And probably the last one, but also is very important, is that we've, we've got a shared personal and professional set of values, which is really essential at this early stage uh, seed investment because it's just as much a collaboration as it is actually an investment for them. And can you tell us any um, particulars of the, the investments you've had so far? Um, from, a, from a startup perspective, how much uh, equity did you have to give away? How much involvement are your investors um, providing in the day-to-day kind of running of the business? Can you give us some more specifics? So unfortunately, I can't give you all the details, but at the moment, what I can tell you is that over the last 18 months, we have managed to raise just over 12 million in seed, seed investment. Um, and yes, they're, they're, all the investors are not actively involved in the running of the business or building of the product, but they, they are very, very actively involved from an advisory perspective. So they are are very involved from that perspective and play a very strong role in terms of just guiding us and supporting us and just yeah ensuring that we stay the course and we don't make any silly mistakes that they've made in the past and uh, any common errors, I guess. And yeah, it's just been really great having them in the corner and just really backing you and supporting you uh, through, through this journey. And so to look at um, the market more broadly, PropTech is kind of increasingly coming into its own, um, particularly in South Africa at the moment. Um, how have you seen the market evolving uh, over the past couple of years? And why do you think now is the right time for a really tech-enabled real estate in Africa? Real estate, especially in the rental space, has largely been left behind from a tech perspective for a little bit for a while. I don't think many will dispute that it's been a little bit behind the COVID lagging. So that in itself presents a lot of opportunities. 
What we have seen over the last couple of years is a lot of the new entrants into the market space that have actually been focusing more on the direct-to-consumer play. So building out a lot of self-service tools um, and DIY solutions. And ultimately, it's looking to disrupt through displacing the rental professional. Um, and if I'm actually honest, we, we spent a good while also playing in that space and really uh, investigating it. And it was through that process that we had that epif- we had the epiphany of realizing that actually a lot of the customers, the majority of the customers aren't looking to self-manage rental properties through choice, but rather it's out of sheer desperation just because they feel like they're not getting the value out from, from the professionals. So that's where we decided to dive in and really focus on building our tools to enable and equip them, which is quite different to what else is going on in the market at the moment. Um, and I think one of the things that's enabled us to do that and what has happened over the last couple of years is there have been really nice progressions in terms of fintech, so not necessarily specifically in the real estate industry, but there have been great advances in terms of fintech as well as payment solutions. So, for instance, we're actually making use of a hyperledger and we've got a private, on a private blockchain. So there's some really fun, exciting, powerful technology out there that can actually start tackling the, the payments uh, problems and challenges in the industry. In the, and obviously, when you're talking large sums of money, which you are a property, that's really, really critical. And um, yes, I think it's it's also it's about being able to have solutions that can scale and really that have the intelligence to, to be able to properly automate a lot of the processes, whereas a lot of legacy systems they, they promise you a lot of automation, but actually when you chat to the poor souls actually running the systems and platforms, they feel like they work for the systems rather than the other way around. So the advances in technology means that we can actually now uh, really build out solutions that can um, genuinely automate things for customers. And so as you've touched upon, your solution combines some of the big IT technologies right now, um, smart payments, blockchain, um, is this all too much tech to introduce into what has been so far, I guess, quite a fragmented industry and quite a manual industry? Obviously, whilst we're very excited about the, the, the tech that we've got sitting under the hood, it's, it's also just really about marrying that with uh, the users and understanding who they are. And it's generally not a very tech-savvy industry, so it's also about designing tools and systems and using the latest and greatest technology, but also actually putting it together in a thoughtful, intelligent way that's actually really user-friendly and actually can serve the customer and it's positioned in the right place in the right, right way. And to that end, it's also actually designing a financial services system or platform that's designed for the rentals industry, whereas a lot of the other uh, products tend to be built and designed for financial and uh, accounting managers, which a lot of the users actually aren't. Um, and for you as a company, can you tell us what's uh, next on the horizon? What are your plans? Yes, sure. So I think in the immediate future, as I just alluded to, it's, it's really about starting to, to move on those, um, rolling out those distribution partners and networks that we've got in the early early new year. And through that also, we'll, we will be looking to raise some investment in the not-too-distant future to just really help us with the next growth phase of the business. Um, and then... Yes, from a tech perspective and architecture perspective, we've very much built it and designed it with international territories and expansions in mind. Um, but whilst we're very excited about international expand- expansion, we're also very clear that we just need to keep our feet grounded and stay very focused on the local South African market. So for the next little while anyways, the focus is very much going to be on South Africa and just really getting our penetration right in the local market.
Climate change is making it harder for farmers to grow crops profitably and sustainably, and more so in Africa. Hello, I'm Moses Kimani, founder and CEO of Lentera Africa. We are a Kenyan-based agriculture technology company that is enabling farmers increase their yield and adapt to climate change in two ways through precision agriculture and through climate smart inputs. We use satellite data to tell farmers when to plant, when to irrigate and when to scout for pests and diseases. Our data is used by banks and insurance companies that finance farmers. We work currently directly with over 5,000 farmers. We are raising $1 million to scale our platform across Africa with the goal of enabling a food secure and prosperous future for each farmer in Africa and each farmer across the world. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Disrupt Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and please remember to let all your friends and colleagues know that they can listen to the podcast on any of their favorite podcasting platforms. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. In the meantime, stay safe. Goodbye. Bye.